Uh, we believe that, uh, that God is, is amazingly good to us. One of the ways that He's good to us is He's given us His Word, uh, that He intends to instruct us, to speak to us, to care for us, and He's doing so uh, in, in Scripture. This is the 15th chapter of the book of Acts. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider the matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as He did to us. And He made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who make these things known from of old." Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, Although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth, for it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us 
to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Let me pray. God, we thank you. Uh, we thank you for moments like this when, when good news, when grace was contended for uh, by the early church. We thank you for the outcome of the faith of Paul and Barnabas and James and Peter and the leaders in Jerusalem. We thank you that in looking to Jesus, you have lifted the burden that we bore to be right before you. The burden that we that we bore to, to make ourselves just in your sight. And God, we confess that it is tempting to, to bear that burden day after day after day. And we've come here today unworthy. We've come here today not in our own righteousness, not in our own merit. But we've come because you have accepted us, you've called us, you've given us grace through your Son. And I pray that you would help us, that you would teach us. God, I pray that you would take these words and you would sear them into our souls. God, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. That we are approved, that we are accepted, that we are loved because Jesus Christ met every requirement for righteousness on our behalf. God, I ask that as we learn together, as we come underneath Your Word, that there would be encouragement like the church in Antioch was encouraged. Holy Spirit, would You come and bring life and bring light. Spirit, fall and give, take from Jesus and give to us the same Jesus who said, come to Me all who are weary and heavy laden. God, You promised rest. And I ask that You would give us rest this morning. Not because we've earned it. Not because we deserve it. Not because we can demand from You. Because You're good and gracious. Father, give Your Spirit an abundance. A Spirit of life. A Spirit of assurance that cries out, Abba, Father. We need, we need that today. And we ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a debate an argument, a fight that takes place in Jerusalem. If you were following the history of the church up to this point, this is right about the part where it's like, it starts to get good, right? If you're a person who likes conflict and likes uh, all the organization and structure of what's happening in the church, people who love church government and say, how should we structure it? Acts 15 is the holy grail of church government. Oh, who was going? They were sent from where? In Antioch to Jerusalem. And what's the role they had? And why did James get to stand up and say, listen to me, right? There's a whole lot going on in the structure and organization of the church. And I think that there's some things for us to learn there. But what this whole section is about, really, it's about one word. It's about one concept. It's about something that is extremely difficult for 
the Jewish people to accept, and I think that we, we're going to do our best to realize this is difficult for all of us to accept. This is about one single word. It's about the word grace. What does grace mean? What does grace look like? How does it operate? How does it function? And what we find out very, very quickly is that this issue was big enough that Paul and Barnabas set aside everything else they were doing and they said, I'm going to go fight over that. I want to go fight over that. Some of you are parents. Anyone else a parent? I think there's some parents. Um, What I'm learning about parenting, we have three boys, two six-year-olds and a four-year-old, is that my entire life consists of about like 30% being, uh, being a human and 70% being a referee. That's like all I do is referee fights. Yesterday we're playing games and within about 15 seconds, uh, Micah landed the most square, loud punch straight to Mason's eye than you've ever seen. We were playing football and somehow, I don't know how it was. You know how like in the movies, you see like a sound effects guy adds in a smack? when, I, Like... That's a real sound, and I heard it yesterday, right? So we got one kid crying, except Mason's the toughest. He's really tough, and so he's crying, but he is sprinting after Micah, like about to to give him his comeuppance, right? And then right after that, while they're fighting and running around, Reed went over and found a ball that had been, been in the grass and nasty and waterlogged for like a year and a half. And he just decided to come up in the midst. Well, I'm refereeing these. This is, this is a true story. I'm refereeing this fight, right? And Reed comes up two feet from Mason's ear and just throws this baseball as hard as he can straight in his ear. So there is a three-ring circus of fighting, right? It's just, and all I'm doing, all I'm doing is teaching them things to fight about. I'm constantly having to reinterpret life for them because they fight about every single thing. And not only do they fight about every single thing, but they will cry about every little thing, right? You know how many, this is my, one of my favorite sayings as a dad. There's a lot of sad things in the world. Fruit Loops are not one of them, right? Like, like, like honey, it's going to be, a, listen, yes, a girl will break your heart. This is not that moment, right? Like trying to teach them that there are things that they'll cry about. There are things that they'll fight about. But one of the things that happens in maturity is you realize that you don't have to fight about everything, right? You don't have to fight about everything. If you run around someone like this that wants to fight about everything, the, 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 new, the King James Version has a beautiful word for someone like this. In fact, the church was instructed, don't make a person like this a leader in your church, They said that this person was pugnacious, right? It's a beautiful word, pugnacious, someone who just likes a fight, right? One of the things that the the grace of Jesus does, one of the things that the Holy Spirit does is it teaches us that we can calm down and chill out and not fight about everything. I think some of the first few years of marriage is simply all about figuring out what are we going to fight about, right? You ever had that moment with your spouse too? Oh, so so we're fighting about this then? Okay, (laughs) okay, right? What are we going to fight about? And that's the question that has come to the forefront in Acts. This is the question that they're dealing with. What is worth fighting over? What's worth dropping everything they're doing and going down to Jerusalem and holding a council with all the leaders? What is worth fighting over? And what we're going to find out is that the gospel, the gospel by grace through faith, is the thing that the leadership in the inner church said, this must be fought about. This must be contended for. I want you to look at Jude, verse 3. 
Jude is a funny little book. It's right before Revelation at the end, uh, at the end of your New Testament. And Jude writes this particular thing to the church. I think this is, this is something that the early church is wrestling with, and it's what gives us Acts 15. Jude, verse 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation. He wants to write about joyful things, good things. He says, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. To contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Christians, we need to be kind and gracious and loving. We need to realize that God has included all kinds of people from all kinds of cultures and languages into the family of God. We need to be people who walk in forgiveness just as you've been forgiven. But that does not mean that we are weak when it comes to the Gospel. If Jesus and His merit and His righteousness on our behalf is contested, then, then it, it's like, it's on, right? Like, no matter how loving and peaceful you are, it's like, you got to like put your, what is that? That's like the, actually bare knuckle maybe even, right? That'd be better. You need to, you need to seriously consider what you are contending for in life. And in this particular section of Acts, the leaders of the church are needing to contend for the gospel, to contend for grace. That's what, they're, that's what they're up against. The question is basically, what is the nature of salvation? We see that in verse 1 of Acts chapter 15. What's the argument that some men came down bringing? Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, this is the question, you cannot be saved. That was what was being put forward. In question form, rather than an assertion, if you don't do this, you cannot be saved. The question is, how can we be saved? How can we be saved? Now, if you don't have any understanding of sin and you don't believe that God is real and you don't believe there's a judgment to come, if, you don't, if you're not agreeing and you're, you're suppressing the conscience within you that says there is right and there is wrong, And this might not be a big deal to you, but for those of us who have been awakened to sin, who understand guilt, who see the holiness and perfection of God, there will be a day coming when this will not be a minor debate. This is not a small, intersect, sort of like, uh, inner, that's a hard word. You know, I meant to say sect, like portion of a religion, you know what I mean? I'm not going to go there. So it's not like a, it's not an intermural Quabble, that quibble, fight. That's what I want to say. One of these days we'll get there. It's not a minor thing. You know what I'm saying, right? Like if somebody from the outside came in and you were like, they listened to some of our meetings. Scott and I, we sit with the pastors and we talk about things that are very intramural. They're just internal. What's the nature of Sunday worship? And what songs should we do? And how should we... There's, there's actually church meetings in the last couple of years where very learned men of divinity have gotten together and spent hours arguing about how we should take communion. Is it okay if you dip bread first? Or should it be eat the bread first, then drink... And there could be some people who would look in from the outside and say, like, this is just such an internal, intramural thing. It just doesn't even matter. It's just a minor thing. Like, call me when you figure it out. That's not what this issue is like. To Paul and Barnabas and the leaders in Jerusalem, this became an issue for which they must contend. They're going to fight it out. 
There are some people who believe that this was just a minor little question. There are some who have actually taught about the whole idea of justification in the New Testament was really just who was sort of on the inside of the social club, right? I don't believe that that was the case. Very helpfully, this is how John Stott describes the issue that we're reading about in Acts chapter 15. He says this, The issue can be clarified by a series of questions. This is what the leadership is wrestling with. Is the sinner saved by the sheer grace of God in and through Christ crucified when he or she simply believes, that is, flees to Jesus for refuge? Has Jesus Christ, by his death and resurrection, done everything necessary for salvation? Or are we saved partly through the grace of Christ and partly through our own good works and religious performance? Is justification being declared right before God? Is justification sola fide? by faith alone, or through a mixture of faith and works, grace and law, Jesus and Moses? Are Gentile believers a sect of Judaism or authentic members of a multinational family? It was not some Jewish cultural practices which were at stake, but the truth of the gospel and the future of the church. The reason this is such a massive deal is because in Paul's mind and in the minds of the leaders of the early church, it was not sufficient to simply say Jesus plus something else. You could not say, well, Jesus is central to salvation, but you need to trust and believe in Jesus' work and Jesus and was a non-starter for the church. And they realized that this is a gospel issue. One of the things that's cool about reading the book of Acts is that all throughout this book of of Acts, concurrently with what's taking place in these journeys, Paul is writing letters and planting churches, many of whom he speaks to more directly in the rest of the books of the New Testament. One of the first times I I got in like a serious Bible class, it was this guy, this old dude named Ollie Olson. That's his for real name. Uh, And he, he was probably one of the best Bible communicators and teachers that I'd, uh, that I'd ever sat under, ever heard at the time. We were gonna, he was going to teach the book of Philippians, and I was excited. I thought, like, yes, we're diving into Philippians. Let's do this. And so I'm 18-year-old me. I have, like, brand-new notepad, right? Pen is all warmed up and ready to go. And we sit down, and we're going to learn about Philippians. And he says, I'd like you to turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 16, please. I thought I was in the wrong room. I thought, like, what happened? Like, Why? And I began to realize, and it's shameful to say because I'm 18, right? I began to realize like, oh, so the churches that he wrote to in the letters later, he's planting them in Acts through the missions, right? There's connections between books that are coming later in the New Testament and what's taking place here. With that being said, turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 1. If you want want a, a fuller picture, if you want commentary, Galatians chapter 1 is like the inside scoop. When I was a little kid, I used to watch Inside the NBA. Anybody? It was like my favorite thing in the world, right? Because I loved the sport. I saw the event that was taking place, but then I wanted the the commentary. Nowadays, when I want the commentary on something, I go to Twitter, right? You're watching the event. You want to see what people are saying about it. You're watching the event. You go to the reviews. We just saw the event in Acts chapter 15, Galatians is a first-hand commentary account on the issue that was taking place. And I want you to see just how seriously Paul took this particular issue. I'm going to start in verse 6. We need to ask ourselves the question, 
Is our understanding of grace and the gospel a big deal? Listen to how Paul answers it. Starting in verse 6 of Galatians 1. I am astonished, he says, astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you, how did He call you? In the grace of Christ. And are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. And as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For Paul, this is not simply an additional commentary on the gospel, the true gospel. It is an entirely different thing altogether. It's interesting that the word here he uses in verse 7, some who would trouble you, is the same word that's used in Acts 15 later when the letter is sent back to the church in Antioch. said, though have some, some have come to you and caused you trouble. That's what, the, that's what they actually say to the people in, in the church. I know that some have come and caused you trouble. There's one other section in, in Galatians that I want to mention uh, to you that shows sort of what's happening here. Look at chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2. Starting in verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. This is Peter. This is an interesting, another bit of conflict in the early church. Verse 12. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. So I just want to pause there and I want to set up essentially what's happening. So Jerusalem is the center of Christian life, basically at this point. It is the major sending city. This is where the Holy Spirit fell, right? They have all the street cred of the early apostles. They are a church that's being built and growing. It's the foundation. The teaching is coming from Jerusalem. And we know now at this point in Acts that Paul and Barnabas and probably others have been sent out, right, into the other areas of the known world. And so Paul and Barnabas specifically have been operating out of this place in Antioch, which is up to the northwest. It's away from Jerusalem. They weren't Skyping with James down in Jerusalem, right? They didn't have FaceTime. They weren't holding go-to-meeting sessions with them. And so news would not travel necessarily And what happens is, in the midst of their preaching and teaching in Antioch, right? So they're preaching and teaching Jesus, grace, His merit alone. The thing they required of people was look to Jesus and trust Him. And some other dudes show up. That's what he's saying. Some other guys show up, and they're of what he calls the circumcision party. He actually, in Galatians, gives them a a name. He he takes the word word Jewish, basically, and turns it into a name. It's the only time that word is used in the New Testament. He calls them the Judaizers. And these guys show up, and they begin saying, yes, believe in Jesus, and that's fine. Jesus did a whole bunch of stuff, but you need to follow the laws of Moses. The intriguing thing about this is that they lie. They lie about it. It says certain men came from James, right? Did you see that? Certain men came from James and said, hey, from Jerusalem, just so you know, James said, James said, this is sort of like the kid in, the kid in, uh, in your house saying, mom said, right? This is another refereeing moment. 
You know how many times I've overheard my children come and ask me something? I say, no, it's not your turn with the video game. They walk into the other room. Dad said it's my turn with the game, right? Using, using me, right? And I'm like, no, this is not going to happen. They're using the authority that the other, they know the other kids have to begin to stir things up. And so these guys come. They say, oh, James sent us. In other words, we're sanctioned from Jerusalem. We have the word from on high and you need to do this, which is why they caused so much trouble. They began pitting the word of Paul as an apostle against the true and real Jerusalem apostles. It's one of the reasons, did you notice how many times in the New Testament Paul's sort of anxious about defending his apostleship? He's constantly saying like, no, I'm legit. I'm, I'm legit. Like Jesus gave me the message of the gospel because things like this were happening all the time. We know that they lied because in Acts 15, what we just read, James himself says, these guys were sent out not from us. In other words, these people who left, they did not come on our authority. Verse 24, it says in Acts chapter 15, verse 24, since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds. And what's the last phrase in verse 24? Although we gave them no instructions. These are divisive. These are divisive, conflict-hungry, perverting the gospel kind of false teachers. Do you see how insidious this is and how, how, much of a con- how much of a conflict and problem it must have been in the early church? It's one of the reasons that in so many of the letters, the instruction to leadership in the church is Find false teachers and punch them in the eye and then send them away. This is not a minor discussion. This is deceit and lying in order to pervert the grace of Jesus Christ. This is putting a burden, a yoke upon the church. And thankfully, God has set up this system where they work together and they figure it out. I love the phrases in this particular section of Scripture in Acts chapter 15. After Paul and Barnabas, it says in verse 2, had no small dissension and debate with them. The next time I have a conversation with my wife, I'm going to characterize it as such. We tried to figure out where to go on our date, and we had no small dissension and debate about it, right? They had no small dissension and debate. Later, when all of the, the church is gathered, all the leaders are gathered, it says that there was much debate Verse 7, there was much debate. Peter stands up in this assembly. Coincidentally, this is the last time that Peter is heard from in the book of Acts. So this, is last, this is his last moment, his, his swan song. He stands up and gets the gospel right after we find that he had gotten it wrong previously. So this question, what do we do with the Gentiles? How will they be saved? Let me give you a bit of caution I think it's easy for us to look at this and be like, yeah, those stupid Judaizers, right? We have our doctrine right. We're a church who totally gets it. And I just want to caution us and say that things, things are messier than that. And we're not that far removed from these people who are probably sincerely trying to figure out how do we have these people who are fearing God and trusting Jesus, how do we have them walk in a way that's pleasing to God? This is a sincere question. I think it's interesting that Luke takes careful care in verse 5 to declare the party of the Pharisees believers. He says in verse 5, but some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees. In other words, 
They were sincere. They trusted Jesus. They wanted what was best for the church. They're not arguing these things, at least all of them. I think these guys who went to Antioch and said, uh, yeah, James sent us. Those guys should be, should be punched. But these guys were sincere. And I want to tell you that this is not as easy and simple as it seems. Sometimes we're lulled to sleep and we don't ask these questions because we're all sort of, we're just very homogenous in the church. Similar backgrounds, and even if we didn't have a similar church background, everybody knows sort of cultural mores. Like, we know how to behave in church. We know, what, we know what looks holy and sounds holy. We know what we should dress like and be like. For the most part, we live in a country whose nations have sort of been, just been, they've been shaped, right, pretty distinctly by, by basically Judeo-Christian values, and so we live a particular way. I heard a story of someone who was doing, doing missionary work and he said, yeah, I never really thought about the complications that the Jewish people had until I started doing ministry in this village and, and some men came to Jesus. And I met this guy and we rejoiced over his salvation and he had come from his, his village and he, he gave his life to Jesus and he began worshiping and he was there with his family and I met his wife and I welcomed them in and it was, it was beautiful. And then the next week they came back to church and I welcomed the man. I said, hi, I'm so glad you're here. And then I said, well, and please introduce me to your friend." And they introduced, and this woman said, oh, I'm his wife. And the, the guy said, like, well, no, you're not. I met, I met his wife. I met his wife last week. This is not. The guy had five wives. He had five wives, and he comes to Jesus, right? And the leadership of the church interacts with this guy and says, how in the world do we apply the gospel in this situation where you trust Jesus? There's very clear commands about marriage. And yet there are five different women relying on this guy who had money and power and influence in the culture. He can't just turn them aside and send them out and say, good luck. It's not the way things work there. They couldn't own cattle or land in that particular place, right? And immediately this guy said, I began to have compassion. I was an outside influence who came in and I believed that I was speaking truth and grace and life to them. And all of a sudden, life got really, really messy. The Jewish people for thousands of years have been following this law of Moses and saying this is exactly what we need to do. There's no coming, there's no coming to the temple. You cannot give sacrifice apart from being ceremonially cleansed. And now what are they going to make of the grace that comes through Jesus Christ? We could ask other questions. If someone converts from Islam and comes to Jesus, can they no longer ever go to the mosque? Do they need to change their get-up? Can they not wear the clothes that they wore? How much separation should they have from their family? What is, what is okay and what is not okay? Can they be in the same room as the prayers that are being spoken? Is that, is that, what, is, what is implicit and what is explicit idolatry in those instances? See, I think sometimes we're insulated from these questions because we live in a culture where everyone is basically sort of the same. And even when God does a miraculous work and saves someone and opens their eyes to the gospel, it doesn't take us too much to sort of just like fit them into a little box and say, just clean up a little bit around the edges and you basically got it. Just sort of act like us and you're going to be okay. We can read a passage like Acts 15 and think to ourselves like, well, we're not Judaizers. We're not believers of the Pharisee party. And so there's no way we'd have problems with this. And yet all of us have a temptation to work and to act 
like our approval of ourselves and of other people starts from the outside and works in. There, has been, there have been massive efforts in Christianity throughout the ages not to speak grace and life and truth, but to simply have people conform to a spirit or a mode of godliness, a culture that we think pleases God. And this is a temptation for all of us. My desire when I read through something like this and I'm praying through Acts 15, I think to myself, would it be, God, that you would send us messy adventures like this? Messy adventures. We want people whose lives are messy and broken. People who come from diverse backgrounds with different cultures so that we have to ask questions and think carefully about how the gospel applies to who they are. We know for a fact that this is a settled issue. I think that verse 11 of Acts chapter 15 becomes sort of the, the hinge of the whole thing. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. And I want you to note what this comment means from Peter. Peter is reframing not only what the Gentiles must do, he is reframing access to God for both self-righteous, law-abiding, or attempting to be law-keeping Jews and Gentile converts from every kind of background. He's reframing the gospel to say it is grace. We believe that we will be saved. Do you see what happened? If you are having a problem applying the gospel in a gracious way, if you find yourself constantly placing burdens of legalism on people who want to come and trust Jesus... The issue is not, hey, let's figure out how to fix them. It's a sign to Peter. This is how I know that the Holy Spirit is work. It seemed good to them and the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's at work because they have a bit of self-reflection going on as well. If you want to figure out what does the gospel mean for someone else, the first place to say it is, what does it mean for us? And Peter says, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, just as they will. Access. Access to God's favor, His unmerited favor, is through faith. It's not by merit. This is Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. This is how he summarizes, Paul summarizes in his commentary of this section. And yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So also we believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. By works of the law, no one will be justified. So the question is, how is someone saved? What is the nature of salvation? And the answer comes back every single time, grace, unmerited favor. It's not Jesus plus a few other things. Circumcision maybe seems odd to us, and so we didn't have that. For in our context, I think we need to really think clearly what is the temptation for us. Is it Jesus plus a particular Bible study program? Jesus plus a particular kind of doctrine? Jesus plus a particular kind of worship experience? Jesus plus, plus, plus. What, what is the temptation for us? I want to mention just a couple of couple of things about grace. If we wanted to characterize and say, what is this grace like? The first thing to say is that this grace comes to us only in one way. 
Our only hope for right standing before God is grace. When I say grace, I mean unmerited favor. That's our only hope. The only hope to stand right before God is grace. And the only way to get grace is through faith in Jesus Christ. Access to grace comes through faith. We see that extremely clearly. Verse 9 of Acts chapter 15. How did God make no distinction? It says He made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Cleanse their hearts by faith. How did they become clean? The answer is faith. That's the only way we have access to grace. What's one of the applications of grace? What does that mean for us? Because we get grace through faith and not through any other means, it means that God has created a system of right standing before Him that is unbelievably inclusive. God made no distinction, verse 9 says. No distinction between us and them. Our disposition ought to be toward inclusion. Grace instructs us and tells us that no matter how often we try, no matter how much we want our culture to be right and perfect, it never will be. And so it works against the temptation for us to have a sort of cultural imperialism. It should work against the temptation of us to bring someone into our midst and say, yes, trust in Jesus and believe in Him, but... And then give them this extensive list of things that will make them really included. We find this all throughout Scripture. At the end of Galatians, he mentions this. Galatians 3.28. This is how inclusive grace is, according to Paul. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. He resounds the same thing in Colossians chapter 3. Colossians 3.11. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So grace comes to us only in one way, faith. Grace speaks to us a gospel that makes no distinction based on cultural, cultural normity. Yeah, normity is not based on your ability to, to follow the law perfectly. All of us have a need to be forgiven and included based on someone else's merit. That's what grace means. And then finally, because grace is so significant, it must be contended for. One of the things we learn from Acts chapter 15 is that God set up a system of elders, apostles and elders. You notice how many times we see the phrase apostles and elders throughout this text? Look at verse 2. They they were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders. Verse 4, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders. In verse 6, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter all the way through verse 22 then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders verse 23 the brothers both the apostles and the elders one of the gifts of leaders in the church is that someone is paying attention to the gospel someone is contending for the truth of the grace of jesus christ that's one of the major jobs of someone who would be an elder in the church 
It's one of the reasons that it says that they ought to be apt to teach. Because your leaders need to be able to discern false teaching first of all, and then have the Spirit of God giving them enough boldness to speak out against false teaching. And then finally, elders or someone in the church needs to have enough authority to say, no, this goes and this does not go. We need to remove it and it's gone. Does that make sense? Do you see how God does all three of those things? He gifts people with the discernment to see what the gospel looks like. He gives people the boldness to speak against things that would endanger that gospel or make the church be on unstable ground. And then there's a submission of the church to people so that someone can graciously, lovingly say, we love you, Brother Jim, but you will not hold a circumcision party next Saturday morning, right? Like, you just won't. That's not going to fly. Like, I'm sorry, we're canceling your event. Someone needs to be able to do that. Otherwise, the church is merely a collection of people who are just, we're just all trying to figure it out. What's your, what's your interpretation? Oh, that's great. The gospel for you, that sounds awesome. No, the faith was once for all delivered to the saints and the church has a responsibility to discern and speak and remove false teaching. And that's what takes place in Acts chapter 15. This understanding of the gospel, this understanding of grace has been passed down for 2,000 years. It is the remnant that sustains and gives life to the church. We know that this particular issue, how is a person saved, is what sparked the Reformation. Martin Luther felt that he was under such a burden to carry the law and to have his own works commend him before God. And in a reading of Romans, realized that he could be justified, that he could find grace only by faith, and it turned the world upside down. He contended... He contended for grace. This is what we ought to be doing as well. When I say contended for grace too, let me, let me clarify before I pray for you. I think it's very possible for us in the West. We love information. We love to be right. We love debate. We love no small dissension. And when I think about contending for grace, I, th- I can think in a very sort of like, like push up my glasses, write the essays, let's get the scholars in place. Let's just get our doctrine right. I believe that America in in general is full of churches who contend for the doctrine of grace while at the same time letting rampant cultures of non-grace exist in their church. I don't know if that's a fair critique, but I want you to know that this is a very, very possible scenario for us to fall into because we love doctrine. I I love theology. I love to think about what God has done in Jesus Christ for me and for the world. I love that. But grace means if you really truly understand that you had no merit before God, if you've really wrestled with the idea that all of your works, all of your striving, all of your pretending, everything that you could offer to God in the end, when fire hits it, it burns away and is gone. If you're really clinging to grace, then it's going to change the way you live and act and include and welcome. It's going to change your hospitality will be quick to forgive, quick to include. And I want us to have a culture of grace. I think Scripture calls us to a culture of grace as much as it does to the doctrines of grace. I hope that's clear. I want to pray for us that God makes that so. God, I pray that you'd help us. 
I pray that you'd help us to not uh, speak what is true, but then live in, in a way that puts a burden on other people. I pray that we would not speak with our mouths that we are trusting in Jesus alone and his merit alone for forgiveness or for salvation, but that live in a way that makes it seem like we're trusting church attendance or a particular system of theology or we're trusting our ability to get it right. God, help us. I pray that you would work in us an understanding of this grace so that when temptations come for us to go astray, that we would contend, that we would fight. We'd fight for unmerited favor in Jesus. And I pray too that you would create in our church a culture of inclusion. That we would look around and when people come and say we're messy and we're broken and we can't get it right, we can look and say that's exactly how we came as well. God, I pray that we'd see that the gospel is not just something to be spoken out there. That we need it here This morning, God, when I woke up, my merit was not in my ability to hold it together. It was not in my MDiv, not in my understanding of the Bible. The only hope that I had this morning, the only hope that any of us have here in this moment is that you have accepted us freely because we've looked to Jesus. I pray that we not only contend, but we would cherish that thought. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. We come to the time in our our service where we take part in the Lord's Supper. And um, I heard a quote recently that said, The Lord's Supper um, levels the playing field. And what what the author was trying to communicate was was this, that there is is no distinction in in two ways, the gospel tells us. One is there's, there's no distinction, as Romans 3 says, that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But in addition to that, um, not only is there no distinction in that way, there's also no distinction uh, for those who receive Jesus as their Savior, um, that there's neither slave nor free, there's, there's not Jew or Gentile, there's rich or poor or um, black or white or male or female. We all come together to receive freely of Jesus' grace for you and for me. Um, In other words, the gospel unites us. Uh, There's no distinction. We all are sinners, but we all worship and love a great Savior. And so this morning, we're going to do something before we actually take the Lord's Supper. I'd like for us um, together to to read together. There's going to be a quote up here. Um, There's a creed. This is the creed. This is our faith. We want to read this together because the Lord's Supper here unites us in our faith in Jesus Christ. And so we're going to read this together, and then I'll give instructions for the Lord's Supper. So let's read this together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell, The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven, is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, 
and life everlasting. Amen. So the Lord's Supper is, is here for us to unite together around the truths of the gospel that we just proclaimed. And I want to remind you again of what Peter says. He says, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. And so as you come this morning here at Four Oaks, we, we come down the center aisle and we take a, a piece of bread um, and we take a, take a cup and we bring it back to our seats. And this is to remind us of the fact that there is no distinction, that we all are united in our sin, but we also are united in our faith in Jesus Christ and the grace that he freely gives to all those who trust in him. So as we, as we sing, come forward and receive the gifts of God for the people of God.